can't, he can't stand straight. Sacco, the man of the claw. Sacco, the rock's in trouble. Get his the hair. rock's in trouble. Get anything. Mankind has got the claw locked in. Somebody's got to do something, Mr. McMahon. Somebody's got to. He's got him. Look at this now. The claw on. Rock desperately trying to get to the ropes. Can he do it? Reach back. Can Reach the, the corporate champion get to the ropes? Wait a minute. It's over. We have a new champion. We have a new WWF champion. a WWF champion is by pinfall or submission and since The Rock did not tap out or did not say I quit, still your WWF champion ladies and gentlemen The Rock. Oh, that's a damn shame. No, he's right. Hello, my name is Chris White and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast where we're going back in the time machine to December of 1998 to bring you part two of volume two of this month's batch of shows. Volume one for the month brings you your WCW coverage uh, looking at Starcade. Volume two part one has a review of the first WWF pay-per-view of the month, Capital Carnage. And volume three rounds off the standard shows for the month with ECW. In addition to this, you lucky listeners, this this month we have Volume 4, which is, of course, our annual end-of-year award show, taking a look back at 1998 across all three promotions. But as I say, this is Part 2 of Volume 2, as the Fed had two pay-per-views this month. And joining me for the ride, we have the boss himself, Rory McNamara. Rory, how are you doing? Good evening, or And also, uh, rounding off the, uh, the trio of hosts, we have Chris Lacey. Afternoon, boys. 
Uh, Chris, would you kindly take us through our news headlines so Rory can guide us through the WWF news for the month? Pay-per-view hits rock bottom. Yes, they took their time getting there, but the WWF finally served up an absolute turkey. And what perfect timing it was doing so in December of this year. Yes, In Your House Rock Bottom took place at the General Motors place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in front of a very nifty 20,000 fans, but they were treated to, as we will get to a bit later on, a truly wretched show filled with irrelevant tag team matches, phantom title changes, and somebody eventually being buried alive when the person operating the backhoe was eventually given a little tap on the shoulder to say that it was his cue. All of this will make sense later on, dear listener, when we break down the show for you. WF's input is too raw, says Stone Cold. Yes, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yes, that one. The man who is the poster boy, if that's the right expression, for everything the WWF now represents, has gone on record saying he is not particularly keen on many aspects of the product. In a high-profile interview with TV Guide magazine this month, he said that, and I quote, whenever they bring in the racism and the sexual stuff, I turn out. It's concerning for the McMahon-Austin relationship behind the scenes as we move into 1999, especially as Vince himself is still completely unrepentant as to the nature of his product. And he also said, in a bit of an aside, in the same interview, that nowadays nobody cares about steroids. I will let you analyse that one yourself. I've got news for you. HBK's gone. Yes, Shawn Michaels are written out of television on the last edition of Raw this month, relinquishing his role as on-screen commissioner, being fired in the storyline by Mr. Vince McMahon. Said the reason for Michaels being removed from television is that this could really be it. But he's being told by those very nice insurers of his that if he actually stays out of the ring, he will pick up a few more pretty pennies than he would if he did see the back specialist who will apparently be able to get him fit to compete again. Do you see the dilemma he has here? But WWF are getting very frustrated with Michael's own will, he won't see, so it looks like to some degree they've taken the decision for him, but there is absolutely no truth in the rumours he will be turning up in World Championship Wrestling anytime soon. Sometimes you can't fight fire with fire, Jess. If Jesse Ventura's story rumbles on. WWF this time have now actually released a Best of Jesse Ventura videotape. For those of you who have seen him wrestle, you would expect that one to be about 30 seconds long. But he himself is very, very pleased with it. But just when you think that the waters are finally cooled between the two, the WWF have released, the, or in the process of releasing, a new videotape, Best of Survivor Series, in which the early years matches have been redubbed commentary. So Jesse's been replaced by Michael Cole, more on him later, and Kevin Kelly. Those of you who a few years ago purchased the very similar WrestleMania video, which looked at WrestleMania's 1-9, to will be very, very used to this, in which they had JR calling matches long before he even joined the company. And yes, I am referring to the videotape in which Vince McMahon says, maybe there'll be a WrestleMania on the moon one day. Vince, we're still waiting. <laughs> and in a very, very serious news, get well soon, Jim Ross. Yes, we touched on this during our review of Capital Carnage in the previous part. We have a few more details now. Uh, shortly after landing in England for that pay-per-view, uh, JR learned that his mother had died. 
and it is believed that the stress of that very sad news brought on the bout of Bell Poles, Bell's palsy, which he suffered during the show, by all accounts. The fact he was able to stick it out is testament to the man and his professionalism. But he has understandably been taken off television and replaced by the previously mentioned Michael Cole. But of course, the most important thing is JR's health. It is said it is not quite as bad about a Bell's palsy as he suffered four years ago when Vince McMahon fired him. Prognosis is that he could be back on television as early as late January. So let's hope that is the case. And I repeat, get well soon, JR. Uh, Chris, with Rory having expertly taken us through the month there, uh, what stands out to you? Um, Probably JR aside, as obviously we all hope he's back on our screens and back to full health as, as soon as possible. But uh, what stands out to you as the most important or biggest news for, for the Fed this month? I think it's uh, it's got to be the uh, part of Stone Cold coming out saying that the product that he is the figurehead for is a bit too racy and a little bit too, uh, too explicit for his own likings. Um, Seeing the fact of, you know, if you looked up Attitude Era as what we're in now is what they're calling it, and you look at who personifies that the most is the guy that fights his boss, that is Stone Cold. Um, is rather strange that he's thinking, oh, it's a little bit too much for me. Um, I don't, I don't know where that comes from, really, but yeah, um, different. We uh, only have to go back to, what, October to get to the angle of uh, Austin taking Vince hostage backstage and eventually putting a gun to his head in the ring before pulling the trigger. Uh, Rory, what do you make of uh, Austin's uh, comments this month? Yeah, I said at the time on that show that I thought Austin's character was taking it a bit too far there, all but suggesting he's going to murder his boss live on television. And I just wonder if Austin now is realising that his character is probably still jars fairly uncomfortably with a lot of the stuff that WWF are doing. He's saying explicitly that he doesn't like the sexual and racist elements that are being shown on television. Because I do get the impression that Steve Austin, Steve Williams, whatever you want to call him, he is still a bit of a traditionalist. Go back and watch his WCW matches from when we first started this product, 93-94. He was, to use his own terminology, a mechanic. You know, he got down and dirty on the mat. He was a holds-based guy, but he could have worked that style anywhere comfortably in the last 30 years, early 60s onwards. And I don't think that has left him completely, despite the character he is now playing, the Smash Mouth style he, he embodies and executes so well every week. And, of course, the fact that he is playing a character who everybody can relate to. Hats off to him that he's using his position in the company to say what he thinks. He's safe in the knowledge that he can say that there are aspects of the product he doesn't particularly like. You know, Vince is not going to can him for this. <laughs> he has got some legitimate leeway, which I would imagine very few people backstage outside of Vince's immediate circle actually have. I do wonder if... Deep down in his heart of hearts, Steve Austin wishes that he could be the guy having 25-minute Matt Classics with Ricky Steamboat. Although that million and a half dollars a year probably does help these days. And as you uh, touched on there, Rory, before we get to our review of the Rock Bottom pay-per-view, um, we had the uh, Cab to Carnage show 
which was reviewed on part one of the volume two for you this month. And uh, we also had the first Raw of the month, which had quite the Stone Cold Steve Austin angle on it. first rule of the month opened with Triple H, X-Pac and China calling out the New Age Outlaws who came out wearing suits, with Road Dogg calling them Vince McMahon's Tag Team Champions of the World. Shawn Michaels came out and argued with Hunter over who started DX before Michaels booked Hunter and X-Pac against Boss Man and Shamrock in an Anything Goes match later tonight. D'Lo Brown defeated Jeff Jarrett after Goldust got involved and flashed with this distraction allowing D'Lo to get the pin. Gangaro and Edge versus the Headbangers ended in a no contest when Luna attacked the Headbangers. Tiger Ali Singh and the Oddities hit the ring and we had a rather messy brawl. Paul Bearer reassured Vince, Shane and The Rock that The Undertaker could be trusted. The returning Owen Hart was defeated by Goldust who picks up the win with a roll up after Jarrett and Deborah came out and Deborah flashed him. The Godfather and Val Venus facing Bradshaw and Farouk was quickly thrown out as the teams brawled around ringside. Stone Cold Steve Austin came out to talk about his match with Taker at Rock Bottom. Taker's music interrupted and his voice played through the sound system. A large Undertaker symbol was lowered and caught fire after Taker's promo. Steve Blackman defeated Tiger Ali Singh. The Blue Blazer ran out and Blackman attacked him until Owen Hart hit the ring. Mark Henry defeated Droz after China interfered, hitting Droz, allowing Henry to get a splash for the win. Despite the anything goes stip, DX and Shamrock and Bossman ended in a no contest when Billy Gunn teased hitting Hunter with a chair but instead nailed Shamrock with it, revealing the Outlaws had been pulling another fast one. And in our main event of the evening, Austin and Mankind teamed to face The Rock and The Undertaker, which ended via DQ after Shamrock and Bossman ran in. And in an angle we'll talk about more on the main show, The Undertaker then crucified Austin to close out the show. So in the main event, on the 7th of December edition of Raw, we had a tag team match which pitted Austin and Mankind against The Rock and Undertaker, which ended when Bossman and Shamrock ran in for the DQ. After the match, though, this is where it gets interesting, if that's the right word. Druids came out and they helped The Undertaker tie Austin to a huge Undertaker symbol on the ramp, which was then raised, said to have crucified Austin in front of the Tritontron as the show went off the air. Rory had kidnapping, embalming, and Paul Bearer being thrown in the sewer last month. And we start this month with a crucifixion. All in the name of entertainment, baby. But hang on, make sure I've got this right. So we had the embalming before the crucifixion. Now, I'm no expert, but haven't they got that the wrong way around? <laughs> yeah, this is... Um, well, we're, talk- we're talking about calling this a crucifixion angle, okay? The Raw, which we all got to see at the beginning of December with JR, not on commentary. Remember that, not on commentary. Michael Cole. (laughs) See, every opportunity I can to not mention his name, I take it. But here we go. Michael Cole and the King. Their commentary, to me, felt very, very canned indeed. And yes, it was a taped show, but I think there was a specific reason for that. They were very downbeat for what was supposedly a very explosive angle to take us into the pay-per-view. Now, here is what I believe happened. 
If you watch that edition of Raw, you will see JR on the commentary table because, of course, this was taped before Capital Carnage and before he had his Bell's palsy. It's been reported in The Observer and The Torch that he actually recorded a commentary track for this particular match and angle in which he explicitly said that, indeed, Austin is being crucified by The Undertaker. Go back and watch what we all saw all around the world and you will hear Michael Cole and The King talking about Austin being raised on The Undertaker's symbol, which suggests to me in the six days between recording and airing, they got slightly cold feet. Now, considering the things we have seen this company do over the last eight or nine months, that is not a situation we see them in very often. It really is a case of put it on TV now and we'll answer all the questions later. But here, I just wonder if they thought, hey, hang on a minute. It's, we, we are playing with fire here in the most extreme metaphorical sense. Of course, we talked about it on the ECW show over two years ago, the angle with Raven and the Sandman, which wasn't even shown. Even ECW balked at showing it on their hardcore TV. And here at WWF, the symbolism, pun intended, was definitely there. Of course it was. It's a cross-like symbol, which Austin is being raised on with Undertaker saying that, quite simply, he's going to kill him or bury him alive in six days' time. But, you know, that is what he means. So we don't need it spelt out to us. But at the same time, the WWF thought, mm, dodgy ground, dodgy ground. But obviously not enough to pull the thing completely. Um, once again, it's a wrestling company making a rod for their own back. One of those things which I can imagine Vince Russo, bro, telling his boss, bro, that this is going to be fantastic, bro. We'll keep all our eyes on the product, bro. But uh, it didn't make me want to see the pay-per-view. Austin did his best when he shouted, I'm going to get you, you son of a bitch, in the way that only Austin can. But this was too much. But you know, they ain't going to stop here, are they? Chris, what did you uh, make of the crucifixion or not crucifixion as it, as it turns out? See... I liked it, especially sort of the earlier one when they burnt the the effigy beforehand and was like, ah, look, satanic, evil, dark Undertaker. And seeing the fact that both of these guys then don't get seen for the rest of the month, I think it works quite well. Um, obviously, spoiler going into the pay-per-view, but one of them's buried alive and the other one is not seen afterwards and both of them were working with injuries so as a way of getting them through into the the pay-per-view and sort of being relevant still i liked it and i said it at the same time when we had the whole ecw thing i don't see why people get so caught up on it you know it isn't it's clearly not a cross it's not religious it's a very different looking symbol than what could be sort of misdrewed as anything christian and the undertaker's doing the ministry of darkness he is being very very satanic and evil and cult-like so yeah i like it and i'm quite interested to see what and where we go with it further on but the original commentary mentioned crucifixion apparently it's only in the six days between recording it and airing it that they did everything they could to try to, you know, erase that. And I'm not sure they were successful. 
Um, yeah, I would say I did notice the fact that Cole kept calling it a uh, a symbol. Very, pur very purposefully, in my opinion. Yeah. But I guess the, the issue is being here in England compared to being in the States, you know, we aren't, we are a religious country. You know, we're, we're ruled under a, a government and a queen and a monarch that is, you know, the head of the church. But it's not, you know, Bible Belt America where it's the be all and end all, I guess. So, I mean, I mean our view on religion here doesn't see it as an offensive as it does in the States, maybe. I feel like I could watch this angle without any commentary and I would take religious imagery in the sense of it would feel like feel like a real crucifixion but the symbology would show to me and i i, I it's a tough one really because I, I i think you're bang on the money rory i think it this change definitely speaks to a purposeful and deliberate backing away from the word crucifixion at the very least um it'd be interesting to know if um, as you mentioned in in the news in your breakdown of Austin's interview, did the traditionalist Austin have any backstage input in this? Did he maybe? Did he heed against? Did he say, "Look, we did the angle, but do we really need to say crucifixion? Like we all know what's going on." Uh, and if Austin's not into the racy stuff, the sexy stuff, is he into the religious? connotations of an angle like this on a go-home show for a pay-per-view probably not i mean it's all speculation but it would certainly be in keeping with what we hear from austin guarding this sort of thing with the uh, go-home angle of raw in the books we move on to our review of the pay-per-view the rock bottom uh, pay-per-view itself uh, Chris, would you kindly get things started with the results? So our opening match sees D'Lo Brown and Mark Hendry, who are joined by Jacqueline and Terry Reynolds, beat the wonderfully named Supply and Demand, which is Godfather and Val Venus. The Headbangers defeat the Oddities, who are out there with Giant Silver and Luna Bashorn. Steve Blackman defeated Owen Hart by Countout. The Brood all three, Edge, Christian, and Gangrel, defeated the Job Squad, who are Al Snow, Bob Holly, and Scorpio. Goldust defeated Jeff Jarrett in a strip tease match by disqualification. The New Age Outlaws defended the tag team title against the corporation team of Big Boss Man and Ken Shamrock, who were out with Shawn Michaels. The Rock defeated Mankind, or no, Mankind defeated the Rock even, uh, by knockout. And Steve Austin defeated The Undertaker in a Buried Alive match. Thank you very much, Chris. Rory, what did you make of our final pay-per-view of the year? Uh, WWF got very lucky here, or at least they did until we came along on this show. When I sit down to watch a WWF pay-per-view in December, I know that I'm going to be only amongst very close friends who would also be stupid enough to plonk down money for a WWF December pay-per-view show. They've all been terrible. And this was no exception, but I expected it to be terrible. So I, 
as much of a kicking as I'm going to give this pay-per-view over the next hour, and it will deserve every bit of it. It's tempered slightly by the fact we all knew, and everybody listening to this show, painfully aware that it's a December show and it's going to suck. And in that respect, it didn't disappoint. <laughs> it lived up to very meagre expectations. Chris, what did you make of this show? I have a very sort of obviously knowing that as you said it's the end of the year it's all sort of phoned in we get it everywhere that it's phoned in it was okay you know after after a year where it's been really really good for the fed you know there's been a few times when there have been a little bit off the mark but majority decent this was by the numbers let's just get it done get some people's money for the end of the year now it was just okay yeah i I think for me being a tad generous i I feel this was a a bad show and where there were few well the highlights were few and far between for me in terms of in-ring stuff and even if there was a good match um quite often it was ruined by an illogical or just downright bad finish Uh, Definitely for me, the weakest WWF show of the year. Um, in a year that hasn't been stellar on pay per view for the WWF in terms of like overall show quality, but has been the the, the sort of bang average of of the Fed this year has been much higher. Than this show, I imagine, we'll get from the three of us when we come to give our scores later on. Um, yeah, a pretty weak show for me. So our opening match of the night saw ex-Nation members Dido Brown and Mark Henry take on the team of Supply and Demand, Godfather and Val Venus. Dilo and Val start us off much in the way, uh, much in the same way they did at SummerSlam, with a nice sequence that leads into Val hitting a spinebuster. Michael Carl then drops the following line, which I'm just going to quote verbatim. The Godfather, who is, of course, an expert at the martial arts. I'll just leave that one there. Godfather tags in, he misses a hoe train attempt but hits a sidekick, maybe Cole was onto something Henry then tags in, hits a power slam but misses with an elbow Dilo hits sky high for two but the lowdown misses, we get a hot tag to Val Venus and the Godfather suplex Henry as PMS and the hoes have a stare down on the outside Godfather tries to calm things down but Jacqueline takes advantage of this to pull down Val's trunks and Mark Henry Hits him with a splash, which is enough for the win. Chris, what did you make of our opening match? It was, as with a lot of this, okay. Um, you know, this this is one of those that it's a thrown together tag match because they've not had any interaction going sort of recently, sort of leading for a reason for them to have a, a match against each other. So, yeah, it was... 10 minutes, non-offensive, okay match. Rory, your thoughts on the opener? Yeah, just completely and utterly blah. Existed, as so many matches do, even on pay-per-view these days, to try to get over people who aren't really in the ring. And this was all about trying to get PMS up and running. Yeah. I'm really not absolutely sure where D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry actually come into it with those two. I'm still not absolutely certain what PMS is supposed to be. Are they 
using D'Lo and Mark Henry in any way, or because we all know what we all know what PMS stands for, at least on that side pretty of the mean sisters. Yeah, of course, pretty mean sisters. What else could it possibly be? That's, of course, that's what I meant. <laughs> pretty mean sisters. Um, that's all I've really got to say. There's nothing to say about this match at all, apart from me also picking up the Godfather's supposed skills in martial arts. <laughs> I don't know if that was an intentional hark back to his pre- one, of, one of his very many previous gimmicks three years ago. He's also an expert in voodoo magic, but he didn't get a chance to do that here. But yes, just just a, a nothing match, raising more questions than answers. And I don't really care about the answer to that question, to be honest. No, agree with both of you. Nothing happening here. Not much to discuss. I'm not going to dwell on it. Not really the kind of caliber match I would like to open my pay-per-view. Felt more of a sort of front to give a house show tag. But I suppose, as Chris points out, relatively inoffensive. So we move to a match that makes me question my involvement in this entire product project as the headbangers take on <laughs> Kurgan and Golga of the Oddities. The crowd sits in complete silence, wondering what they've done to deserve this on pay-per-view as the Oddities <laughs> ploddingly work over the headbangers for quite a while. Eventually, Kurgan misses a splash and the headbangers take advantage. And I say this very lightly, they get the heat on him. Kurgan telling is really something. Golga gets the chicken korma of hot tags as Kurgan backdrops Mosh. The headbangers make the blind tag and Mosh hits a very ugly crossbody off the top to steal the match as Thrasher held Kurgan back to prevent him from breaking up the pin and putting me out of my misery. Rory, your thoughts on this tag? In answer to your question, Chris, it's lines like chicken korma of hot tags that the reason you are on this particular <laughs> You've only got yourself to blame with sparkling wordplay like that. See, you're saying chicken korma. I think it's more of a butter chicken. <laughs> Just the plain chicken breast. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe with a little bit of rice. <laughs> yeah. Plain rice with plain chicken breast. Oh, my God. Subsistence level grub. Let's move on. Um, rubbish, quite frankly, really, isn't it? Again, just here to fill out the card. Another irrelevant tag team match. When your two best workers are Thrasher and John Tenter with a mask. Well, not even a mask, <laughs> with a brown paper bag on his head. It waves around a Cartman. And they are your two best workers by some distance in any match. Talk about a hiding to nothing. The whole concept of the oddities purely for the amusement of Vince McMahon. Seeing big dudes dressed up in bright colours dancing. And that's all it is. But Vince McMahon's humour level too often is just so base in every sense of the word that he, let's face it, gets off on that. And it does not bother him one jot that with people like Kurgan and Giant Silver, who was thankfully not involved during this one, that the oddities are, in the immortal words of Homer Simpson, the suckiest bunch of socks who ever sucked. But hey, look, they dance. Rubbish. Chris? I know um, we had a conversation about this in the end-of-year awards show where we said the state of this tag division, this is the point where it really proves that WF either need to go on the hunt for tag teams or, you know, start 
really putting some effort into finding some because as I've said before, you know, I fought last year or so that you know the headbangers were cool. They were purposely messy, more, you know, awesome band shirts. And I was like, yes, they are really shit. I've, I've realized this <laughs> over this past year. You've also then got the oddities whose only purpose I thought initially was to get ICP some, you know, publicity. But now that the ICP have gone, why are they still here? Can can we just like can we not just have Earthquake back as Earthquake and get rid of the two big lads that clearly can't work? But the worrying thought was we see later in the month that fucking George the Animal steals with them. So they're not going anywhere, which depresses me greatly. And this match should never happen, even on a fucking house show, let alone a pay-per-view. Yep, this was a uh, complete dud. Yeah. Well, I don't know if my review would have made my thoughts pretty clear, but I did not enjoy this. Um, no reason for this match to be on the show in any capacity. Nothing but a detriment. I could have told you that just looking at the card. Um, really, really bad stuff. Like an, a, a minus star match for me. This is bottom barrel, oh, rock bottom stuff. Fair. The second match on the show. So uh, things can only get better. And thankfully, we do move away from that match into an Owen Hart match. As he is up next, taking on Steve Blackman. Owen, as you imagine, is uh, over huge to the Canadian crowd. And he gets us started quickly with a much needed change of pace. But is swiftly cut off by Blackman, who is quite nearly uh, nearly quite booed out of the building in the process. They trade offense for a while with Owen hitting a suplex and a leg drop. Blackman hits some trademark kicks and Owen bails. Blackman hits a backbreaker to set a bow and arrow before Owen escapes and hits an enziguri. Owen has a succession of quick two counts after an atomic drop and a leg lariat followed by a drop kick, suplex and a flying elbow before he slaps on a chin lock. Blackman tries a comeback straight into a knee lift. Owen pulls the turnbuckle pad off, but is rammed into it before Blackman hits a clothesline and some elbows. He tries a sleeper, but Owen reverses it into the dragon sleeper, but Black, Bra- uh, but, but Blackman breaks it with a knee to the face. Owen hits a DDT and goes up top, but Blackman catches him and locks on a sharpshooter to massive heat. Owen makes a rope to a massive pop, but then bails, losing via countout <sighs> after just... 10 minutes of action. Chris, what did you make the first singles match of the night? See, I was absolutely loving this. And it was a good, it was a really, really good match between Owen and Blackman. Um, Blackman's coming on quite well. Um, Definitely outside him. Owen, we know how great he is. I know you sounded quite down about the finish there, but I quite liked it. I like Owen being at times that little sort of chicken shitty heel vibe going on. You know, it it didn't offend me as much as it sounded like it offended yourself. Um, but yeah, could we have not just given these an extra 10 minutes and not had the opening for two matches? I wish we had. Rory, uh, were you... Uh... What side of the fence do you sit on with regard to the finish? Chris Lacey or, or me? 
I'm with you on this one, YT, I'm afraid. This was excellent for what it was. Really, really excellent. It was always going to be. As Lacey rightly says, Blackman is good. I think he's a little undervalued at times because the charisma vacuum. And in the wacky world of the World Wrestling Federation, if all you can do is wrestle quite well, then you are up against it. But he does his very best. And Owen, tremendous. Of course he is. Owen pretty much worked babyface in this match. And why shouldn't he? He had 20,000 people on his side. One thing he did say there, Chris, it was no surprise that Owen got a pop. I agree with that. But considering how they booked the finish, did the WWF somehow overlook that? That they didn't anticipate that Owen Hart was going to be babyface for the day in front of this crowd? Because otherwise, I, I can't explain it. It's not, even as, it's not even as if Owen did something particularly dastardly to get disqualified or anything like that. He just walked away from the match. Uh, Money Inc. at WrestleMania 8. Now, he isn't that sort of heel, let alone when he's there and the fans desperately want something to actually cheer after the heels going over in two really awful matches beforehand. So this would have been, for me, the... This would have been for me the moment where you, hi Kieran, call an audible, and just have Owen go. Just have Owen go over. It's not going to hurt Blackman at this point. He is what he is. He's perfectly serviceable, like I say. He's never going to be main event, but he's never going to be job fodder anyway. Wins and losses on this part of the card, you can get by them. I don't think anybody here was truly advanced by Steve Blackman defeating Owen Hart with a walkaway countout in any event. So. Just have Owen go over and give the fans something to really cheer. But yeah, a good quality match, and boy, was that on a, quite the premium today. Yeah, I'm really positive on the, the match itself. It was great. It was it was a, it was an Owen Hart match on pay per view. So what you, we got what it promised to be a good, solid, technical professional wrestling match. And uh, as you both rightly give some credit to Steve Blackman as well, who more than held his own in the ring. I think um, what annoyed me the most about the finish is, like you say, Rory, it's a, a cheap heel loss, a cowardly heel loss, but it's not in keeping with Owen Hart's character. And that aspect of it makes it even more confusing. And I'd, I'd like to say that it would have been impossible for the Fed to just completely forget and overlook um, how popular Owen was going to be on this night. But the option that they were aware of it this anyway is is actually worse. So I'm hoping that they did just completely forget where they are and where Owen Hart's from and just what the reaction was going to be because it was pretty obvious what it was going to be as a fan. So I feel like if you're in the company, you should you should be aware of it. Um, and there's, there's ways of... if like give the crowd something to cheer but you could also have Blackman eat a pin but if Owen like if the ref's temporarily distracted because this is one of the few times you'll ever hear me arguing for a distraction finish on pay-per-view but I mean if the ref's like very very temporarily distracted Owen hits him low there you go that leads directly into the finish little cheap he'll win but the crowd's gonna go crazy for that like you're gonna make the fans happy and Three matches in, there's very little of that going on in the show. So I'd have just like something to get behind. 
And I think maybe if this match had been the opener and then it went down exactly like this, maybe I wouldn't have been so down on the finish. But after the first two matches and the fact that I was enjoying this, to have Owen just stroll away really, really let me down. Because that sort of finish raises the question as well. If that's what you're going to miss a prize for any sort of walkaway finish, why don't you do that as soon as the bell rings? Yep. <laughs> yep. Just, that and just he, makes no sense to me at all. Earlier in the match, he had, he'd bailed out of the ring after, I, I can't remember what the move was, but I, I think he took a kick quite early on and rolled out the ring and then gets back in. Well, if you're just going to walk away in six minutes, why? Like, he's completely illogical. And I think when I, you're already in a bad mood watching the show because you're being served up the oddities, um, that's not what you need. Let's see if this can turn my frown upside down as we head into a six-man tag team match between Scorpio, Al Snow and Bob Holly taking on The Brood. So Holly gets us started and beats down Edge to open to Edge counters with an electric chair before making the tag to Christian. Holly cuts Christian off and hits a double underhook powerbomb followed by Scorpio tagging in and hitting a twisting rope, top rope leg drop for two. Snow tags in and follows a headbutt with a northern light suplex and Gangrel tags in and begins to turn the tide in favour of his team, hitting a lariat out of the corner and a DDT for two. The brood take it in turns to work over Snow, isolating from him from his team until Snow manages to catch Edge with a spine buster and gets the tag to Scorpio with the match breaking down into a sick brawl. Snow takes advantage of the referee being distracted in all, this, all the melee to use head on Christian and Scorpio drops the bomb on him for two as Edge breaks up the pin. Edge runs up Gangrel's back and hits a plancher to the outside onto Snow and Holly and Christian uh, impales Scorpio in the ring, which is enough for the pin. Uh, Rory, what did you make of our six-person tag? From a tag team perspective, this was at least a little more like it. It was fairly sprightly. They actually packed a fair lot into those nine minutes. Just looking at the list of everybody in this match now, nobody here is below average Gangrel, probably your weakest worker, but he's got a couple of nice big moves anyway. From an in-ring perspective, he's probably in the right team with Christian and Edge. I think they can bring him up a little bit based on what I've seen of them. And the job squad are all at least solid. So what we got here was a relatively... I was going to say the word entertaining. That's pushing it. So it's enjoyable. But it didn't make me want to smack my head against the wall repeatedly in the way the first two tag team matches did. I think it's because this felt to me like Edge in particular was trying to show what he can really do. I know a lot of people, a lot of people on these shows have been quite high in the last six months. I've been struggling to see it for a while, I must say. But here I thought he really grabbed the ball by the horns and he took this opportunity on a show where maybe not many people were watching were to get those who were watching on his side and maybe work up from there. And I thought his plancher at the end was brilliant. He got some major hang time on that. And I do like Christian's finish as well. You know, fans of the Fantastics will be very familiar with that particular one, or indeed in ECW recently, Christopher. <laughs> but yeah, the right team won. I don't really like the job squad's gimmick. It's too inside. It's, if you, it's one of those things where if you already know you're going to lose a match in kayfabe, then you wouldn't even participate. But no, that's... Again, I get the impression that's Vince Russo's doing. He is who he is, as we'll get to a bit later on. But yeah, 
Decent little stuff here, and I hope that the right people were watching Edge, because I do think he's got something, but it's taken a bit longer than I thought it might. Chris? See, I enjoyed this. I like the Brood. I think the Brood have got a lot of potential. And anyone that's, you know, listened to me on ECW knows how much I love Too Cold and Al Snow. So, you know, you've got two guys that I really like, three guys that I think have uh, got a load of upside. And Bob Holly is a solid worker um, that's just never had the right gimmick. So this sort of very plain, badass, just fighting guy probably is going to work best for him. Um I think everyone did all right. Obviously, it wasn't very long. They didn't do all the spots, but Too Cold got got his shit in. Al Snow got his shit in. The Brood got their shit in. You know, if this was on TV, we'd be going, this is a, a really, really good TV match. The fact that it's on pay-per-view is obviously why you're a little bit down, but clearly the best match so far. Yeah, this was better than i expected decent little six-man tag albeit um and it must be said completely heatless um but the last few minutes for me pretty fun chaotic um i agree that this was a really good showing for edge but i also thought christian looked pretty good but i thought that before um i, I do think the two of them have a lot of upside together and I, as a man who if you listen to the end of year award show after you've listened to this um you will know, dear listener, that I have a desperate hate for the WWF tag division and uh, do with people like Edge and Christian in it, um, quite frankly, because they're fun to watch. Um, I don't know what you'd do with Gangrel then, maybe sort of a manager role and have Edge and Christian as his sort of cronies and they can carry the tag belts and he can go for one of the lower mid-card titles or something like that. But um that's something I'd like to see moving into 99 off the back of this, considering the uh, the options we have in the tag division are few and far between. It's pretty much the outlaws, a load of garbage, and then two singles guys thrown together is kind of how it works. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed this match. Don't really have anything too bad to say about it. Definitely a, uh, a bright spot on a, a lacklustre start to the show. Speaking of... Um, Bright spots, I guess. We move on to a striptease match between Goldust and Jeff Jarrett. Uh, but the stip is that if, uh, Goldust will strip if he is to lose. But if Double J loses the match, then Deborah will strip. We are underway and a, head, and a headlock sequence with a headlock sequence before Goldust gets two of a spinebuster. They brawl uh, outside in an uninspired manner before a Jarrett crossbody is reversed for two. Double J hits a single arm DDT for two and targets Goldust's neck. He gets two with a neck breaker, but Goldust comes back with a suplex before being cut off with a drop kick. An interesting note here that Jerry Lawler, a heel, is siding with the babyface Goldust because he desperately wants to see Deborah strip. Deborah nearly uses the guitar and almost hits Jarrett, distracting the ref and allows Goldust to hit the curtain call. Fans are really into this, no surprise, as Deborah might be stripping at the end. Goldust gets two with a bulldog. Uh, Goldust steps up for the shattered dreams, and Deborah enters to distract him, but is taken out by the ref. So Goldust hits it behind his back. Jarrett rolls out while being and while being counted out, Deborah hits Goldust with the guitar. Jarrett comes in and hits the stroke for the win around the eight-minute mark. 
The crowd are pretty furious with this, but out comes Commissioner Sean Michaels. He congratulates Jarrett and sends him to the back, announcing that the guitar shot means the official result is a DQ, and that Goldust is the winner, which, to the light of the crowd, means Deborah is stripped. She is forced to strip in the ring and seems to quite enjoy the punishment. Before, but before she can remove her bra, the blue blazer and Jeff Jarrett run down to cover her up. Chris, I'll come to you first. What do you think of our striptease match and the post-match angle? The match was was a tad boring. Um, I it was one of those of I, I could have gone without the match. The match didn't really mean anything i did like the end um i like the fact that sean came down to be you know the guy that made everyone happy because you know, it's like Ha-ha-ha! you think you got away with it we're going to change it so you're disqualified and you know drop that classy uh quit your bitch and drop your linen line but yeah as a match it just seems really pointless um and just really furthers, you know, Blue Blazer and the Jeff Jarrett Owen Hart partnership, which I will imagine will then I can only see those two end up as a tag team because they seem to have the same guys that they're going against in matches. So at least there's, you know, it could be a bright spot on the tag team roster soon with those two together. Yeah, I I guess they could they could uh be a benefit to the tag division I, I don't know if i'm that invested in anything jeff jarrett does but maybe there'd be enough from the owen side of things to to make me uh enjoy that it's certainly an upgrade on what we've had at times in the division uh rory your thoughts on the match and the post-match shenanigans see they've tried for such a long time to get goldust over as a face and now they finally cracked it <laughs> Have him be the person who, if he wins a match, a woman has to strip. Why did they not think of that before? <laughs> you know, all these sit-down interviews, all this defending his wife's honour. Ah, sod that. If I win, Deborah gets a kit off. There you go. You can have 20,000 Canadians, you know, supposedly smart crowd, going nuts for you. That's how we do it. <laughs> all those Everyone loves boobs. Oh, everyone. <laughs> Chris Lacey, right on cue. <laughs> the match was competent. Because these guys are competent workers, I always feel I need to apologise for saying anything positive about Jeff Jarrett for reasons that documented. <laughs> but there are worse workers out there that out there than him. I'm not sure I particularly ever want to see them, but facts are facts. They got around the finish very well, and I did like that it was Michaels who made the call because he is, until he got the boot at the end of the month, ostensibly a heel commissioner. Now he's aligned with the corporate team, which is absolutely fine. But things like this, they make him just seem like a real character. Dare I say it, a real person. And yes, I'm going to finish it here, slightly less positively, a real sleazebag with the line that Lacey rightly quoted just now. But it just shows that everybody isn't just completely in their box. You're a good guy, you behave like this. You're a bad guy, you behave like this. That is one thing the Federation have got right this year, and I want to see that continue. Always keep the lines, always keep the delineation. Got to be somebody you cheer for, got to be somebody you root against always but we're all human beings at the end of the day we're not completely compartmentalized guys did you notice at the end when they cut back to Jarrett watching on a monitor there were various members of the roster watching behind him and the rock was one of them 
Yes. <laughs> I thought that was great. I love the fact that that wasn't mentioned either. The fact that Rock's got a huge title match coming up in uh, about 30 <laughs> minutes time. But, but even he can, you know, work in a couple of moments in his own very busy schedule as WWF champion to watch Deborah, you know, do Deborah stuff. Yeah, this match, uh, it doesn't do much for the role of women in the Federation, but it is what it is. I don't think many people will know can make a particular case for it on moral grounds and I wouldn't even try because I'd fail horribly and in that respect it is wrong but I think everybody knew what this match was for and in that respect it did deliver but again based on what Austin said his comments for TV Guide magazine I'm not sure what else they could possibly go with this other than I'll say it Chris full frontal nudity (laughs) we had a brief clip of that with Jacqueline on Capital Carnage but that was almost played off as an accident that's the only place they could possibly go well there's one place they can go after that but um, Chris White what did you think of this match (laughs) I mean I thought it was a fairly pedestrian match that got a lot of heat and I feel like like obviously that's all the stick and but I feel like as workers, the two guys in the ring seem to be fairly complacent. The idea that heat from the crowd because of the stip would sort of carry them to something passable. Maybe that sounds too harsh. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't hate this. Like as a match, it was fine, but I, I don't know. It felt a bit second gear for me. Um, but yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't bad, um, and uh, I, I'm with you both on the fact that Sean comes out. He is a heel commissioner, as you say, Rory, as you as you rightly say. But um, he came out, and uh, I mean, heel or face, Sean Michaels, the heartbreak kid, Sean Michaels. He is a character on WWF programming, whether he's a heel or a face. Who would make this call? Cool. It doesn't matter if the woman in question is a heel or a face. It, I felt like this was perfectly in keeping for his character, regardless of his alignment. And like, there's not many people in that role you could pull this off with. I think if you just had your average heel commissioner, if Sarge <laughs> had come out and made this call, cool, I'd be a bit like, well, that's not really in keeping with the Sarge we know. Um, but I mean, it suits. Shawn Michaels down to the ground right I fully believe that he would make this decision but do you know what it probably it wasn't even meant to be part of the show and Shawn just came out and went for it I believe that I believe that too that's Shawn so yeah I mean a passable match um and uh, a fine angle afterwards I suppose it wouldn't have worked if Vince was out there making the call would it then I think no. it would have actually felt mean-spirited but yes. here it's just Shawn being Sean, aided and guided by whatever might have been aiding and guiding him at the time. <laughs> uh, with that, we move into our WWF Tag Team Championship match with the New Age Outlaws defended against Hardcore Champion, the Big Boss Man, and the Intercontinental Champion, Ken Shamrock. The corporate team here are accompanied by Commissioner Sean Michael, so straight back into his heel role. Bossman tries to play powerhouse to get us started, but the champions have other ideas and they combine effectively to work him over. 
Road Dog hits Shamrock with his punches and a knee drop, but Shamrock rolls through into an ankle lock, which is quickly broken up. The match breaks down into Road Dog taking the heat with Boss Man toying with him. The crowd is deathly bored, and so am I. This lasts an age. Billy gets the hot tag, and uh, and he powerbombs Shamrock for two. Sean distracts the ref, and uh, Boss Man takes advantage of the distraction to use the nightstick, with Shamrock getting a two count. Michael grabs Gunn's legs during a suplex attempt, but Billy rolls through and ends up on top of Shamrock, which is enough for the three count, and the Outlaws retain their tag team titles. You wouldn't know it from my review. This match went 17 minutes. I don't think I left a whole lot out. Nothing happening for me. Rory. Yeah, you definitely overstated it there. Okay, right. This month, an interview with Vince Russo, the head writer of World Wrestling Federation. Television programming at this point in time, and he was defending his own take on the product, what he actually does. And he said, and I quote, nowadays, nobody wants to watch a 20-minute Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio Jr. match. He thinks nothing (laughs) of booking a 17-minute tag team match with Ken Shamrock, Big Boss Man, the Road Dog, and the Badass Billy Gunn. Somebody has got their wires crossed here. Three of the people in this match have absolutely no business whatsoever going 17 minutes in any context whatsoever. Shamrock can, but he would absolutely need to be in there with a grade A opponent. Maybe like the guy who was out there playing around with the nightstick during the match, saying, I'll fire you, you son of a bitch, to entertain himself throughout the 17-minute duration. And it felt a lot longer than that, just in interminable chin lock spots ages between any big moves i never got the sense anybody was trying to win the match the finish then was again completely out of nowhere which for me is a major new age outlaws in ring floor i mean why the two of them don't actually have a tag team finisher at this point for two guys who are so synonymous with each other and have been one of the tag teams of the year purely due to their monumental popularity You'd think that's something they would capitalize on. Instead, it's either a Billy Gun pile driver or a roll through from a suplex, as always seem to get from them these days. I don't think that helps their in ring cause any. I mean, it's the one big problem I have with them. They've got everything else in ring, they've got nothing. And I'm just trying to fill time here myself. 17 minute tag team match on pay per view, folks. The big boss man, Road Dog Jesse James, badass <laughs> Billy Gun. Seven, 17, 17 <laughs> minutes. But of course, we don't want to watch long matches. We haven't got the we haven't got the span for that these days, have we, guys? It's just three minute crash, crash, crash. Nobody wants to watch a twenty minute match between anybody now. <clears throat> Chris, well, at least Sean was really good in this. I, I loved his involvement. Um, this would have been fine if you'd have taken five minutes out of it it could have been a 10 minute match and it would have been would have been fine um these lot are all right together you know we see it quite a bit this month uh when we go into tv for the latter part of the month and you know for tv matches what we're getting like on raw and stuff they work but yeah, this this was over long for what it was and could have been half the time and would have been much better. 
Yeah, I found this match absolute chore to get through. So slow, so ponderous, so boring. This did not need to go 17 minutes. It didn't need to go half that. It really didn't. Far too long. I lost all interest in this match during that segment where they're working over Road Dog. Oh, my God. Chinlock, chinlock, stomp, chinlock, stomp. I think the heat gone 10 minutes. Like, it was so long. Um, I mean, the crowd were into the out. Like, when they came out, up, apart from Owen, I think they had the, well, and Deborah stripping. But apart from that, in terms of actually over acts, they they were pretty over me. And, uh, I mean, they just killed them. Like, they just killed the crowd. But as you both rightly point out, Sean was pretty good in his role because he's Sean Michael. I think he's going to be pretty damn good on whatever you ask him to do. He's the only match for me. You could have cut it in half and I'd have still found it boring. With that, we move on to our WWF Championship match with The Rock defending his newly won title from Survivor Series against Mankind. Throughout the show, we had seen Vince and Mankind meet in the boiler room, and before our match could get going, we had a, a nice long promo duel between Foley and Vince, which established that no one had heard Mankind say the words, I quit at Survivor Series last month, and the bell had rung incorrectly. Anyway, The Rock attacks from behind to get started, and the brawl is underway. Mankind rams Rock's head into the steps on the outside and they head back in. Vince tells the ref that he must DQ Vic for any transgression, no matter how small. The Rock takes advantage of Mankind being distracted by this to blindside him. Mankind fights back, tossing Rocky outside again. He hits a baseball slide and sets up for an elbow off the apron, which is prevented by Shane McMahon. Foley taking a horrible score. Mankind grabs a chair, but the ref warns him about being DQ'd. And this allows the Rock to hit DDT on the chair, which gets two inside. Rocky hits the corporate elbow, which gets another two count. Foley fights back into the match and hits a clothesline, following with a neck breaker before hitting a leg drop onto Rock's groin. Vince demands a DQ. Mankind then prevents this by laying out with a pile driver before turning his attention to the timekeeper before Vince can have him ring the bell. Rock levels Mankind with a chair and hits the rock bottom, but of course, we have no ref. Shane tries a belt shot, but accidentally clocks Rock, which gets two from a second ref. We got an awesome reaction from Vince and Shane on that near fall. Mankind hits a double arm DDT for another two before he introduces Mr. Socko. He locks on the mandible floor and the Rock passes out. The crowd go wild and Mankind has won the match. But wait. Vince gets on the microphone and he does admit that while Mankind may have won the match, the title can only change hands by pinfall or submission. And because The Rock didn't actually submit or say the I quit, he is still the WWF champion. Mankind took this predictably well, hacking Vince and Shane with Socko and the Aston uh, and Briscoe before Shamrock and Bossman could run it down and subdue him, laying him out. Chris, what did you make title match and that finish? I quite I enjoyed this. I think there was it was a good storytelling between that. I liked how the corporation tried to just keep getting their way to sort of you know 
interfere to make sure the rock didn't lose um do you know what? for the finish i don't mind the whole oh but he knocked him out he didn't get a pin or submission because if anyone's gonna go to the rule book and do those sort of calls it's gonna be the heel champion that's led by vince who's you know gonna use all his might and all his power and all his own company to make sure he gets what he wants so as a whole i really liked it. i think it worked really well um i don't know whether there's something wrong with the rock because he didn't seem to get out of you know like amazing gear in this but i mean these two could do something of epic proportions um from obviously what we're hearing the plan is for these two at least definitely into the rumble and maybe even past that i will very much like to watch more of these two and hopefully then find uh, an extra gear because they work well with each other rory uh during the preamble to this match on the microphone between mankind and vince when mankind talked about what happened to him at survivor series i did have to laugh when michael cole chirped up on commentary to call it the greatest double cross in world wrestling federation history ah how quickly we forget eh? this match was much better than their survivor series one much better but i don't think they could have had it without the previous encounter if you go back and watch that one now from november you will see they spend the first five or six minutes desperately working out what they're going to do. And luckily, the remaining 10 or 11, they piece together a decent enough brawl to take us to the finish that we all remember. Here, they dispensed with all of that, and they just went for bells and whistles, and I think that helped them quite a lot. Right from the rock, attacking before the bell. That's what he should be doing. Yanking mankind off the top rope down to the floor. That, that's what these are... That's what these two are at their best, at the very best at. I don't want to see these two exchanging holes at this particular point. I don't want to see them very obviously putting each other in chin locks where they're discussing the next five or six minutes of the match. I would like to think Mankind is far enough now in his career where he doesn't need to do that, and he is. And I do think it's high time. The Rock really needs to put himself in that position now, and I think he's getting there. A few issues, though. They're going to end up turning the rock babyface again if they're not careful. They did not need to do the angle before this where he injured his ribs. Now, you should not be building sympathy on your heel by having him work injured. They did that with the rock before in the IC match against Farouk in May. And look what, ended up, look what ended up happening there a few months down the line. Didn't need that. And I think we're all going to talk about the... Oh, and yes, and the rock commentating on his own match as well. Now, that is not a heel move. I was in stitches during that, and I think everybody else watching was as well. So if you want to try and keep this guy heel, then maybe have him act as one all the time. Letting him be himself, he's fucking entertaining in every single way, but people are going to start cottoning on to that again. Yeah, the finish. Okay. It builds heat on Vincent Co. And it plays back into the promo before the match, which I really liked. But they were making absolutely clear that Mankind did say i quit in november when he didn't and playing up that verbal mention that's the only way you can beat somebody that's what a submission is submission doesn't count if you're knocked out and that was all very nice indeed so often with the wwf their storytelling is so on point it is to the detriment 
of the believability of the matches. And that was the case here. Mankind is played up as a very smart cookie. He knows the score. If anybody would be aware that the corporation would try to pull that trick on him when his finishing move is one which ostensibly knocks your opponent out, it's him. I also think that the finish came across as a little bit too flat. You're saying that Chris had got a big pop. I think it could have been even bigger if they'd actually had Rock really struggling in the middle of the ring for about a minute. As it was, Mankind locks on Socko. 20 seconds later, Rock passes out a bit too quickly for my liking. And I think there you've got some of the fans thinking, oh, hang on, we didn't really have us hanging on that one. What's Are they planning something? And so it proved. Yes, you've got to keep the feud going here. As Chris says, it looks like they're going to be facing each other at the Rumble. They've been battling again on Raw after this. You know, the Rock put Mankind into a rock bottom on the hood of a car the day after this, for God's sake. So this feud is not done. But if you've been watching wrestling for as long as I have, you will know the danger of dusty finishes, you know, killing the town and all that. And secondly, isn't it about high time that the Rock, heel or no heel, needs to start getting some decisive wins? Yep, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Both of you, really. Um, good match. Better than the Survivor Series one. The one thing I disagree with, I just hated this goddamn finish. I get it. I get the attempted logic. I get that it plays off the promo, but this is just stupid. I know it keeps the rivalry alive, but it, who does it make look good? Like, yeah. you... It doesn't protect The Rock because he passes out in 20 seconds to in a hold. Like, he's the champion, and he got beat pretty easily here in a match that had a fair amount of interference and ref distraction. He got beat pretty easy here. We're coming off the Survivor Series tournament, which, okay, he had four matches and four matches, but it was a big con. We know that now. The pay-per-view before that, beat in five minutes by Mark Henry. He needs to look stronger than this if he's your champion, heel or not. Mankind, you're right to point out, they he is like a ranged, damaged character, but he's also a pretty intelligent one. This makes him look like a moron. Like, you, you should be privy to stuff like this, and he wasn't. I thought this finish was bad. I think there's a way of, like, having a dusty finish in which Mankind picks up a win in quotation marks, but the rock keeps up. There's a way of doing that that isn't this. And I feel like if you spent 10 minutes thinking about it, you could come up with a better finish that keeps the rivalry alive, keeps the belt on the rock, and protects both guys better than this one did. I thought this was a detriment to the match, detriment to mankind, and a detriment to the rock. But maybe I'm being too harsh on it. Apparently, I have a lot more of a negative opinion on it than the two of you. So I am the uh, sort of outvoted as it as it is on this one. Um, just to round off before I uh, move on to the next match, what I will talk about again is uh, just how great is Mankind. He's so good. He's such a great character. He's a great talker. He's such a believable character, which when you say that, it sounds crazy. Like, he's mankind. Like, it's, it's Mick Foley. He's basically four characters. At any one time, he can be any of them. And, like, 
some of the stuff we've seen him do and we've seen him say, but he's such a believable Bible character. I'm so invested in him. Like he is for me someone as a fan. I'm in. I'm as invested in as Stone Cold Steve Austin at this moment in time. And maybe that's because, as you mentioned earlier in the show, he's after this we don't see him again for the rest of the month. But for me, mankind is so important to this company. And in 1999, he should have a huge role to play in the main event scene as he has done throughout the year. But the difference is now he's a babyface, And for me, he could be an absolutely huge one in 99. It's such a natural investment with him as well, isn't it? Yeah. He, he, people have been wanting to cheer this guy ever since he killed himself twice in the space of three minutes for our entertainment six months ago. And now people have got a real reason to do it. And I think that's fantastic. And as Chris said, these two work together so well. They definitely have some chemistry. And I, for one, really looking forward to the encounters they're going to have in the new year. I think they're going to be great. And I think every every time these two get in the ring together, I think it will be an improvement on the last one. I think we talk about on the uh, the award show, but The Rock is still green. He is. He's great, but he is still green. And I think being in there with Foley is only a great thing for him in the ring, a great thing for him as a personality, which, I mean, the guy oozes charisma. He doesn't need any help in that front. But Foley is someone who can bring that out in you. He's, a, he's, a, he's someone who, working with Foley, will nurture raw talent. And there's not many people in wrestling right now much raw talent as The Rock. With that, we move on to our main event of the evening with Stone Cold Steve Austin facing The Undertaker in a Buried Alive match, with Austin competing for the right to uh, take part in the 1999 Royal Rumble match. They brawl in the aisle to start, slogging it out around the ring, with Austin bouncing the dead man's head off the guardrail and ring post. Taker hits a chair shot and the action heads inside with Austin hitting his press and an elbow before we head back out to brawl some more. We have a lot of punching, kicking and throwing each other into stuff around ringside with Austin launching, sorry, Taker launching Austin into the Spanish announce table, which breaks. Taker does some choking before we leisurely make our way down to the gravesite where they brawl in the dirt and Austin escapes a burial attempt. We have some more walking brawling very much at the pace of The Undertaker rather than your typical Austin affair, which culminates in a chair shot by Taker at ringside. He fo- uh, Taker follows with a chokeslam in the ring and leads Austin back to the grave, tossing Austin in it. Cole screams that the grave is six feet deep, which is really helpful because we've just seen both men standing in it not five minutes ago, and it is most certainly not. Austin fights his way out with a petrol can and hits a stunner. He heads to the back as Taker slowly crawls out of the grave. With a weird sort of explosion that comes from the grave, and Kane emerges. Kane attacks Taker and tombstones him before sending him into the grave. Austin returns to the re- arena, driving a digger filled with dirt, instructing the driver to drop the soil on Taker. Austin shovels some dirt on top for good measure while celebrating his win and entrance into the Rumble match with some beer. Rory, your thoughts on this match? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate this thing called life. 
No, I'm afraid not. This was fucking terrible. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought having Prince play us out in the award show would stick with me here for a bit of a quote, but let's go crazy, but it didn't really work. Okay, I took it into the funereal methodology. So, okay, let's try and break this one down. Buried Alive match, the second one we've seen in the World Wrestling Federation. The first one, I actually listened back to my commentary on this. We did October 96 with Bob and Eric between Mankind and The Undertaker. I think I oversold it a bit too much. It was a, a decent brawl between two decent brawlers, but it was no more. The Undertaker, his current character doesn't suit a brawling style. Like I said in the previous match, with Mankind, he is somebody you can beat up and get away with it. Austin, you can't really do that with. So Undertaker couldn't really do a whole lot in this particular match this time. So that's problem one. Problem two, this type of match, it's going to end by the graveside. Of course it is. So you could do whatever the hell you want in the ring. Austin could hit 20 stunners on Undertaker. You ain't going to get much of a pop even then because the match cannot end until you drag your opponent all the way from the ring, down the ramp, past the fans, up the <laughs> up the mound of earth, put them into the grave, and then bury them. Uh, it's like the reason I just, I just like Texas death matches. There's no drama in there. There's no drama in just seeing somebody lying flat on the ground and waiting to see if they're going to get up in the next 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, 10 hours. No drama in that at all. That's why pro wrestling is predicated in pinfall terms on one, two, three, pop. I'm just seeing somebody lying down, breathing in and out. There's very little for me, I'm afraid. Certainly when, when I'm watching pro wrestling anyway. <clears throat> and these two just <laughs> didn't, and I, I, I'm going to defend them slightly. These two, they didn't have the chops to do it, but you can't really blame them for that. There's only so much you can do until you get to the graveside. And the WWF being what it is these days, they even then they can't just let it lie. Pun intended. Now, how did Kane get there in kayfabe terms? I mean, come on. He's magical. Damn, how convenient that we shall undertake <laughs> on the other side of the disturbed earth so we cannot see Kane climbing in behind it. Yes, I'm letting light in on magic, but I don't care. And Austin bringing in a digger or a backhoe to cover up the Undertaker with dirt. Yeah, we know that Austin likes his big, mean machines, but couldn't they have picked somebody who wasn't, you know, the son of the bride of Dracula actually driving the thing. We were stood around for an extra minute waiting for the guy to work out how to drive through the entranceway. It was really quite embarrassing at the time. <laughs> so much so that they ended the match long before Undertaker was anywhere even close to being remotely buried. And this was terrible, of course it was, but I like kept it out of my worst match of the year stakes because the whole concept of a buried alive match is so ludicrous. You are taking a fellow living, breathing, sentient human being. You are dumping them and supposedly six foot of earth. And we all have to believe that they can emerge when the show goes off the air and everything is all right as rain the next day. If you can buy into that ludicrousness, then I don't think you can be too critical. Even I've just spent the last five minutes being very critical. But I think it's a case here where it comes with the territory. You can't expect anything other than nonsense with a buried alive match and that's what we got but my issue here again as so often today i tie it back in with austin's comments in the tv guide interview this isn't the sort of thing he should be doing this mumbo jumbo hocus pocus stuff 
yes, he brought it back to Austin with the beer and the vehicles at the end, but no, this is after he's getting involved in metaphysical stuff with Kane and he's no, that's not Steve Austin. It's not. He's one of us. He's not the sort of person who gets involved in this kind of thing. And this was a long, long way to go just for giving somebody a shot in the Royal Rumble. Terrible. Again, much like the rest of the show, though. Understandably terrible. But that's not really much of a defense. Chris, what did you make of the Buried Alive match? It was just boring. Um, obviously, it was always going to be a walking brawl, which we knew. you know, And we see lots of them whenever we watch anything in ECW. But it wasn't done well. It was, it was just boring. Um, the Kane moment, ooh, a bit of mystic, you know, and mystique. It was all right. But then that works if the, the truck was there and to drop the dirt straight away. It was just all sloppy. I mean, I mean that's the the best way to do it. That ending was very very sloppy. Um, you know, I wouldn't blame Austin or Taker or anyone of the work gain in it. It's all to the fault of the producer, whoever decided that that guy was going to do it. It wouldn't have been weird to have a, a digger already out there. They could have had that there, so it saved that minute and a half or so of them just waiting to get out there and drive it out and do a drop. Because it looked as though the guy in there had never fucking used the machines before. And that's that's criminal. It'd been fine. If Austin had gone in there and done that, that's one thing. But, you know, the guy that drives it out, you expect him to know what the fuck he's doing and he can't <laughs> even drop the fucking dirt properly. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah, this was uh, one of the worst WWF main events of the year. But I think we got what I expected out of this match. I think, Rory, you're bang on the money with your analysis of the concept of a buried alive match. It is so flawed. And Chris, you're spot on. You called it boring. It was. It was boring. And the... Uh, the farce with the uh, the digger driver, the backhoe driver, was just ridiculous. Austin's walking brawl style is so effective. It is the archetype of the WWF main event scene in what has been a very successful 1998. But Taker, this character, is too ponderous for it to be impactful when these two work together. I'm not sure much in contrast to the Rock of Mankind from our last match, I'm not sure these two have great chemistry. I'm not sure they do. Stipulation doesn't help, and I'm sure these two will face each other much more in the future, and there'll be matches on different circumstances that are a much better barometer for the chemistry that these two have than a buried alive match. I'm just not sure that the chemistry these two have is that good. I'm not sure you're ever going to get a great match, a Stone Cold Steve Austin main event, the type of match he would have with a Mankind or The Rock or even, dare I say, Ken Shamrock. And I'm not saying that Shamrock is a better worker than The Undertaker. I just think, style-wise, the walking brawl 
Taker has too much emphasis on the walking part of that equation. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it will ever work um, as effectively as it should for what is two of the most important characters in the company. Uh, this match was the main event that this show deserved, all in all. So that will do it for our review of WWF it Rock Bottom in your house. And to round things off, Rory, can I have your overall thoughts on the show? The score rating, 10. Poor stuff here, boys. Poor, poor stuff. But again, like I said at the start, I was prepared for that. If you were to just throw in the tape of this one, I would question your sanity. But if you if you are a completist, then just scoot ahead to maybe watch Blackman Owen and just shake your head at the finish. Then watch the title match, which I don't want to overstate. It was wasn't like a classic brawl between those two, but I think it I think it was promising. And on a show like this, promising is the kind of the best you can get, such as Edge's performance, for example. There are elements you can take from this show and use them to start to build a better one. In its own right, this was not it. December caveat or not, do not seek out this show. A seasonal generous two and a half out of ten, but avoid. Chris, your over reports on the show and a score rating out of ten. It's December, the in-laws are over, you got a couple of hours to kill that you don't want to speak to them, go up in your room and you can watch <laughs> this, I suppose. Or there's probably 28 other films on telly that are worth watching. Uh, as Rory said, you know, it isn't something to go out your way to watch, but, you know, if you watch everything, then, of course, you're going to have to watch it. I'm. I will give it a four. Um, it's not the worst thing I've seen this year. There is that. It's better than December to forget from last month for ECW. So you know. And actually, at least it seemed a little bit better than Capital Carnage as well, which we sat through this month. Yeah. Well, considering how generally strong at least in the main event scene, the top of the card, how good 1998 has been for this company. It's a shame that the year ended on such a whimper of a pay-per-view. Very much the definition of a skippable show for me. Somewhere in between the two of you, I'll sit with a three out of ten. DX opened the second war of the month, coming to the ring dressed as the corporation. Hunter was the Rock, Rhodey was Vince, Billy was Shane, and X Puck was Shamrock, and China was Boss Man. Jason Sensation came out Shawn Michaels, or rather, as he called it, HB Gay, which brought Corporation out. Shawn said the skits were getting old, and he booked the tag champs against Shamrock and Boss Man and Hunter vs. Rock for tonight. Val Venus and the Godfather defeated Edge and Christian in our opening match. Goldust and the Blue Blazer was a no contest when Jarrett hit the ring to attack Goldust. Steve Batman ran in and attacked Jarrett and the Blazer before unmasking the Blazer to reveal Owen Hart. Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown came to the ring. 
Henry told a bedtime story about the end of his date with China before the two defeated the team of Bob, Bob Holly and Scorpio after interference from Jackie. The Big Boss Man and Ken Shamrock became our new WWF Tag Team Champions when they defeated the New Age Outlaws after interference from Sean allowed Shamrock to get an ankle lock. In a segment we'll talk about more on the main show, Vince and Shane came out to make a few special announcements about the 1999 Royal Rumble match. Jarrett defeated Blackman in a guitar on a pole match after Owen hit Blackman with a second guitar. Tiger Ali Singh was set for action but he was attacked by the brood who left him laying on the stage covered in blood. Mankind vs Kane went to a no contest where Mankind decided to leave to try and fight Vince instead. Kane was attacked by the corporation, put in a straitjacket and being and dragged to an ambulance. Mankind was shown beating up Vince in the parking lot until The Rock made the save, hitting a rock bottom on Mankind on the hood of a car. And in our main event, The Rock retained his WWF title against Triple H after plenty of interference, culminating Hunter being laid out by a mystery man previously seen as Motley Crue's bodyguard. Before we round off the year in the WWF, we do have the last couple of rules of the year to contend with, starting with a huge announcement concerning the 1999 Royal Rumble match, the night after Rock Bottom. During the show, Vince and Shane came out and they were there to draw Stone Cold Steve Austin's Royal Rumble entrant number. Unbelievably, they draw Austin as the number one entrant in the match. As it's the spirit of the season, Shane decides that he will give him one more chance, which really annoys Vince. But shockingly, somehow, Austin is once again drawn as number one. Vince then announces that a pers- the person who throws Austin over the top and eliminates him from the match would be given a $100,000 bonus. Vince then said he had another huge Royal Rumble entrant to add to the match. He hyped this mystery person up as an individual equal to Austin's stature and billed him as the one person who could save Ted Turner's WCW before saying that they had never been in the Royal Rumble before. Shane made the announcement of the Mystery Rumble entrant and revealed to us that it is Vincent K. McMahon before drawing the number 30 as the entrance number for his dad. Vince said that this sealed the deal and there was no chance that uh, that Austin could win the Rumble and become WWF champion again. Chris, what did you make of this match and the announcement of Vince being in the Rumble? See, I quite like the the idea of you know sticking it to Austin and giving him number one. I suppose if you're insistent that he's not going to win the rumble, put yourself in there. You know, you're going to make sure you're going to do it. Obviously, putting the bounty on, also you know, will give everyone else in the rumble a reason to put Austin out. Um. The the one thing that I look at this and go, I really hope they're not going to do something where Vince wins it, because while well, we can have Vince sort of go and mania and have the title shot, I dread to think. But seeing the fact what we see later on in the month, at least Vince seems to be taking it seriously. Rory, your thoughts on this second? These two are just comedy gold, aren't they? I mean, aren't they? It's to build on what I say. 
in the award show, if you haven't heard that already. Vince McMahon is the best bad guy in any form of entertainment right now. And I'll tell you what, Shane is not far behind. He's a far cry from the annoying little scrote who was commentating on Sunday Night Heat a few months ago. <laughs> he is the perfect sidekick. And his facial expressions, I think, are undervalued. Now, when Vince McMahon says that the bounty money is going to come from Shane McMahon's own trust fund, which is a great, <laughs> a great line in its own right. And then you see Shane just do a brief double take saying, hang on a minute. Would that be my trust fund then? And then thinks, ah, sod it. He's my dad. He runs the show. I'll, I'll let it go for now. Just uh, really, really great stuff. But it does raise some very important questions about what we're going to get in the Rumble. I think we all had it down as a shoe-in that Austin was going to win the Rumble, especially as his participation in it was the reason for our main event in the December pay-per-view. But of course, Austin has already won the real already won the Royal Rumble on two occasions. Are they going to have him three-peat, as they say? Having him enter at number one does add a lot of doubt to proceedings, or at least theoretically it adds a lot of doubt to proceedings. And I'm with the boy Lacey on this one. I can see a situation where Austin lasts all the way to the end, actually even eliminating a lot of the 28 other competitors until somehow right at the end he's in there with a member of the corporate team. The number 30 comes, it's Vince McMahon, he sneaks in, eliminates Austin himself, claims the $100,000, of course, because it's from Shane's Trust Fund, and goes on to win the Rumble. What the hell do you do there with the title shot? God only knows. I mean, I think whatever happens, we're going to be shifting the goalposts a bit if we end up with Vince McMahon versus Rock as our WrestleMania main event. <laughs> Good for you if you had that one in your sweepstake this week, but okay, I don't see that one happening. But it's intriguing, and it does add a layer of confusion in the best possible way to what has become a very predictable match. So this just puts a question mark at the end of what I thought was going to be a very simple three-word essay, Austin wins again. Now it's Austin wins again? It's really tough because this segment was sensational. But if this segment and what we're going to talk about from the last war of the month leads to Vince McMahon winning the 1999 Royal Rumble, then I'm, I'm not sure it's worth it. This, this was just brilliant. Vince's, I mean, every month, I'd probably go on a, a rant about how wonderful Vince is, but Rory, you're, you're bang on the money to give Shane a lot of credit here. He's really an undervalued performer at this moment in time. He's perfect as part of the corporation. He's perfect as his dad's sidekick, as you put it. And they can't have Vince winning the Rumble. Like, they can't. No, I'm not. I, like, Entertainment, baby. But again, I mean, you're absolutely right, Chris. I agree with everything you, you've said and about to say. But assuming that Mankind and The Rock are facing each other, Rock's still going to be champion. Mankind's still number one contender. You've got Austin in the Rumble. Who else is really a viable winner? Helmsley? But I don't think he's at that level yet, unless you really want to take a shot on him. Vince is almost second favourite, as scary a thought as that is. You got Taker, I suppose. Could uh, win. Yeah, I suppose have... Taker, Taker's not a bad shout. 
Taker's not a bad shout. You could easily pit the corporation against the Undertaker. Is Taker in the Rumble? He lost the match against Austin. I don't think it was for his uh, entrance to the Rumble, though, was I, it? Oh, no, that was, but was. I'm sure I'll be surprised if Taker isn't involved. Yeah, okay. I, I think, yeah, the, the match was just if Austin had to win to be in. No, you're quite right. You're quite right. Um, take yeah, Taker's quite an intriguing shout, I suppose, especially as the next thing we're about to discuss with 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 how that unfolds with a, a certain someone joining the corporation. Um, you could quite easily pit the corporation against the Undertaker. I just don't see how you could make. Vince as the Rumble winner work without completely devaluing the point of the Royal Rumble. Like, but a part of me thinks if you have the same guy win it three years in a row, that's also a bit stupid. So maybe yeah, it's not. That's why. That's why they've done this, really. Yeah. Maybe it's not Austin's year. Like maybe '99 is like. If they've sat down and made the decision, we cannot have him win the Rumble again. We can't. I respect and probably agree with that decision. But if their way out of that is to have Vince McMahon win it, then I'm not sure how I feel. I'd have to see how that would play out before I judge it. But on paper, that sounds like a bad idea to me. As I just touched on, we have a... Another big angle to discuss from Raw in December. On the 14th, the finish of a Mankind versus Kane no holds barred match came about um, with Kane being attacked by Bossman and Shamrock. Kane was in the match um, in the first place as punishment for helping Austin win at Raw. Bottom. Um, at the end of the match, after being attacked by the corporation, Kane was put in a straight jacket and taken to an insane asylum by the corporation, as I say, as punishment for his involvement at the pay-per-view. Raw opens with a clip of Vince telling Shane, Briscoe and Patterson he's going to work out in preparation for the Rumble match. The corporation come to the ring before DX and Mankind interrupt. Triple H tells Shane that he's a bigger asshole than his old man. Shane announced that the Outlaws would be facing Bossman and Shamrock in singles matches, Hunter and X-Pax would face The Rock and Test, and Shane would be facing Mankind. Al Snow defeated Gangrel with the Snowplow. Billy Gunn defeated Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock in what was announced as a title match. The crowd popped big for the title change, but Commissioner Michaels came out and said that he'd never actually made a title match, so Shamrock would be keeping the belt. Hawk was in the ring and promised that he would discipline Droz. Droz, Droz jumped him, but Animal ran in to stop him. The Blue Blazer faced Steve Blackman with Owen Hart on commentary. Owen ran in for the DQ until Goldust made the save. Goldie and Blackman unmasked the Blue Blazer, who was revealed to be Jeff Jarrett this week. Road Dogg defeated the Big Boss Man for the Hardcore Championship after interference from Mankind. Bradshaw and Farouk got themselves disqualified against Scorpio and Bob Holly. Mankind vs Shane predictably turned into a huge brawl with the corporation running in before DX made the save. 
Velo, without his tag partner Mark Henry, who was too busy throughout the evening in the locker room with Jackie and Terry, lost to the Headbangers in a handicap match. In our main event, which we'll discuss in greater detail on the main show, The Rock and Test had a no contest with Triple H and X-Pac when Kane interfered, attacking all of the members of DX and joining the corporation. The following week on Raw, on the 21st of December, we had a main event tag match between Triple H and X-Pac taking on The Rock and Test, who we'll touch on uh, a bit more in a second. Um, Test had cost Triple H the WWF title the week prior in the main event of the 14th of December Raw. During the match, Kane emerged, evidently not having been committed for long, and he attacked DX. Chokes I'm in Hunter, Billy Gunn and Road Dog before turning his attention to X-Pac and finally China as the show went off the air. Chris, I'll come to you first. What do you make on uh, the two newest additions to the corporation? We have the Motley Crew bodyguard and we also have Kane. So um, first things first, we'll go with Test, who, from what I've heard, the reason his name is Test is... Uh, all he would do at sound checks would be go on the mic and shout test lots. So it's a bit of a, a joke to that. Um, I, I don't know anything about him. I don't know whether he's, he's have any real wrestling things beforehand, or if he is just a, a meathead that's come from being literally the bounce of uh, Motley Crue. But, you know, it's, it's someone new for, the, what the the cronies to run through whoever's trying to get at the corporation. Kane is the bigger one. Um, this this whole thing of him being crazy and being put into an insane asylum, only to literally come out the next week as Vince's pet. Um, I think this that could work quite well as a little sort of fun thing of them trying to keep him under control. Um. There's, there's definitely an upside to it. Whether they actually do pay it off properly, who knows? Because, you know, the Fed can sometimes fuck things up that make sense. Uh, but, yeah, I think it works. Rory, what do you make of the two new corporate additions? Okay, uh, test. Let's talk about him just for a second. Yeah, I'm with you on this one, Lacey. The co- Is he the kind of roadie who, when you're at a gig and the support band have been on, and the backing tape is playing. He is the sort of roadie who goes up to the drums and just bashes them really, really, really loudly. <laughs> I'm yes, guessing probably. No, nobody's actually watching, but yes, you can hear me on the drums going, dum, 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 over the PA. This is my moment. Oh, and you might see me in about 45 minutes' time when there's a tiny speck of water on the right-hand side of the stage. There was a one in ten zillion chance the guitarist might slip over. I'd better come on and try and save him. Yeah, we all know from, and that's before you get to the other stories about roadies. But yep, he is. Um, it's pretty obvious to see why he has been signed by the World Wrestling Federation, and indeed why he's already got such a high-profile role. I was going to call him a Vince McMahon wet dream, but I don't think there's enough Kleenex in the world to <laughs> cover all the wet dreams that Vince McMahon has been able to live out. Test is just another notch on the bedstead in that respect. I'm liking what they're doing with Kane. They can't tell the same story with him forever and ever. They can't. I think the story, as we are supposed to read it, is that he has actually been to a mental asylum before. 
how many of the 20 years he spent between <laughs> the funeral home being burnt down and then appearing again at Bad Blood. Paul Bearer never mentioned that at any point over the last 12 months, but I will let that one go. But you cannot keep telling that story where he's the wrong brother of The Undertaker and he's come for revenge. That is done. They're doing something different with him where he's been effectively held against his will. And it adds extra layers to his character that maybe, just maybe, this guy, he's not so bad. He's just misunderstood. And yet at the same time, he is nothing remotely like a standard issue good guy, which would be completely non-believable. Here he's doing bad things because the corporation are forcing him to do so. If he doesn't dance to their tune, he's going back to the insane asylum. And I really do like that. It's giving characters reason to exist and making them. Characters, not gimmicks. There's a huge difference between the two. Kane could easily have been a gimmick. You know, a big guy who was in a fire once who wears a mask. Now he's becoming, again, a character. And that, for all their flaws, because the WWF's writing is not perfect. There are many things I would change. But they care so much about everybody on their roster. They're giving them reasons to exist. They've all got motivation. That So few people are nice goody two-shoes or bad guy autograph book ripper. There's so much more to all their main characters and even some of their less main characters than that. And that is testament to the two Vinces. It really is this time. Agree with both on both of you there. Uh, I think uh, Jury is very much out on test. Uh, we didn't see enough of him this month to work out what he's going to bring to the table, but it's very clear why he is there. And Rory, very right to highlight the difference between character and gimmick. And, and this is another string to Kane that is much better than silent, aggressive big guy attacks people during matches on Raw. Like, it, I know that's what he did here, but it's not like Kane runs in, hits a chokeslam, that's the finish. Kane comes in, hits a chokeslam, that's the finish. There needs to be more, and they're giving him more. It bodes well for Kane in the new year. Kane being held against his will by the corporation obviously leads to Kane one day snapping, turning on the corporation and going babyface. So that's the story that they're going to tell in the first part of 99. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what the timeline on that story is. How long will Kane be a part of the corporation? How long will they be able to treat him the way they do? And when will he snap and who will he snap against? And what do we see from Kane by the time we get to WrestleMania? Um, it, it's a more intriguing usage of Kane than for me personally. I know we didn't see him for the majority of the month. I'm more invested in Kane's character going into 99 than I am that of his brother. Um, and that trying a lot of stuff with undertaker 2 and it's very very different from the stuff they're trying with kane but for me this is more impactful so it'll be interesting to see how that really plays out on our final rule of the year we're showing shane asking vince why he hasn't yet fired Shawn michaels vince says that he wants to humiliate him 
Michaels has booked Road Dogg versus Val Venus for the hardcore title. During the match, Test, Shamrock, Bossman and Kane come down to ringside and attack Rhodey with X-Pac, Billy Gunn and Triple H making the save. Vince books the Road Dogg versus Mankind for the hardcore title later in the show. Vince demands backstage that Kane bring the head of another DX member to him during Raw. Al Snow and Edge ends in a DQ when Snow attacks using Head. Christian, Gangrel and the Job Squad ran in after the match. Sable was set for a match against Spider Lady, but a woman came into the ring and gave her a flower. Spider Lady eventually came out and whipped Sable with a belt before the match could start. The Oddities made the save before Spider Lady unmasked as Luna. X-Pac and the Big Boss Man went to a no contest after both men left to involve themselves in a Venus and Test brawl. We'll talk more about this on the main show, but we had an absolutely incredible skit of Vince training for the Royal Rumble match with Shane. Steve Blackman and Goldust defeated Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart after Owen was distracted by the returning Dan Seven. Triple H and Ken Shamrock went to a DQ after the Corporation and DX brawled. The Outlaws had to help Hunter to the back afterwards. Badass Billy Gunn told Kevin Kelly that the IC title should be his and then Shamrock got in his face. Mark Henry and D'Lo came out so Henry could beg China for forgiveness for its actions last week. China came out and told Jackie and Terry to stay away from her man, grabbing Jackie by the throat and promising that next time she wouldn't be so ladylike. Billy Gunn was set to face Ken Shamrock, but Shane came out and said that Kane would be facing him instead. X-Pac attacked Kane for the DQ. In our main event of the evening, Mankind challenged Road Dogg for the hardcore title. They had a wild brawl through the crowd with the Rocket ringside, who got involved hitting the rock bottom on Mankind. Road Dogg said after the match that he hadn't want to win that way. And to close the show, Vince came out to the ring and fired Shawn Michaels as commissioner in a segment you'll heard more about in the news. Shawn hit switch in music and danced as the show went off the air. And we round off the month with a discussion of one of my favourite Raw segments of the month. We saw a skit on the final Raw of the month with Vince McMahon training for his entrance into the 1999 Royal Rumble match. Vince, looking absolutely jacked, it must be said, is being screamed at by Shane as he works out. Some highlights from Shane include, how bad do you want this? And just screaming the word repeatedly, endurance, 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 as well as just shouting Austin in his father's <laughs> face over and over again. Throughout the segment, Vince moves from cries of, too heavy, damn it while exercising, to squeamishly looking at a glass of raw eggs, before eventually turning to screaming, I hate Austin on every rep exercise, and willingly seeing off copious amounts of raw eggs. Rory, I'll come to you first. What did you make of the training montage? Okay, forget everything we said 10 minutes ago. Based on this, have Vince win the fucking rumble. <laughs> have him eliminate Stone Cold Steve Austin from number two with a finger poke. Just do it. Just get him out of there. That's it. And he can get rid of everybody. Triple H, Undertaker, I don't care. Have Vince maraud through them. Win the whole thing in 30 minutes. That's it. Done. God, was this good. Absolutely hilarious. But at the same time, as funny as it was from start to finish, I was pissing myself, quite frankly. It was believable too. It wasn't just mindless comedy. This still fit their characters. And you've got Vince. You know, let's face it, Jackie might be. He's still a 53-year-old man. And he's there looking at all this gym equipment thinking, hmm, 
You want me to pull that? You, know, you want me to <laughs> run this treadmill? You want me to swallow these raw eggs? And then two minutes <laughs> later, he is the bionic Superman shouting, I hate Austin. I hate Austin. But there was one moment as well where he's saying that, but he's clearly knocking himself out. So when Shane asks him for the millionth time, who do you hate? He just says, oh, Austin. As if he's about to pass out again. <laughs> I adored every last second of this. And based on what Shane was saying, no, but still four weeks to go, baby, that we could well be getting four more skits like this. And assuming Vince doesn't pass out during the filming of them, I'm going to be front row and center. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Lacey, what did you make of it? I pretty much can't say more about it than Rory has. Um, the the only downside to this is that it doesn't have the Rocky theme playing <laughs> as it montages because that's all it needed, or at least you know some sort of 80s hair ballad would have been perfect for it. If this doesn't make you want to go to the gym and you know get rid of that excess Christmas weight, nothing will. You know, if, if Vince McMahon, powered by his hate of Austin, can make him do that, you can go to the gym and work off that extra Christmas dinner that you had. And uh, this was just an all-time great Raw segment for me. Uh, that is high praise, but that's how I feel. It was so funny perfectly on point with their characters story enhancing everything about it action and uh it was a really welcome way to it wasn't the, obviously the main event skit of, of the last roar of the year but it was on that last roar and after a lackluster pay-per-view it's quite a nice way to round off the show for what has been a, a good year for the wwf and uh, i look forward to venturing into much more of what we have in store in 99. But for now, that will do it for this episode of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Let's say thank you for joining me very much, Rory. Always a pleasure. Rory, uh, any plugs? You can be found on Twitter, etc. I will leave you to do all the podcast stuff today, my friend, but you can just no find problem. me on Twitter at PlanetsDropUV. That's my personal account. And, of course, a huge thank you to Chris Lacey. You're more than welcome. Yeah, you know, it gives me a reason to watch other things that aren't just so extreme. Uh, Chris, any plugs? You can be found on Twitter and all the like. Well, always, you know, if you want to hear my musical musings, go to Show and Tell with Tunes. Um, over this past month, we have had Rory on for the Christmas show. There's been the two-part albums of the year shows. Um, there's been a couple of awesome guest host shows. So, free music for you to get in your ears um and if you want to hear my musings and rantings about football legacy five 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 six 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 wonderful so listener we have five episodes for you this month with volume one bringing you wcw of course starcade volume two part one capital carnage this is volume two part two and volume three rounds off the month of our standard shows with ecw in addition to this it's the end of the year so we of course have our annual end of year award show taking a look back at 1998 across all three promotions which if i do say myself is one hell of a listen 
If you'd like to give us a little thanks for the podcast, we are, of course, on Patreon, for where for as little as $1 a month, you can grab yourself early access to our shows when available. If you would like our extra bonus content, which we do every single month with fan-requested, out-of-timeline reviews, you can grab those by pledging $5 a month. It's as important. Uh, as always, it's important to note that the, the main monthly content will always be absolutely free. We do not do this for the money. It's a privilege to do this. It's fun to do this. But if you feel like showing your appreciation for the fact that we do do this, then www.patreon.com slash YRS is the place to do so. But to round off the month and 1998 on the WWF side of things, I have been your host, Chris White. You can catch me on Twitter if you'd like to do so, at ChrisWhite14. Thank you very much for listening throughout the year, and I'll see you in 